Um, so Exodus chapter 2, we are in this uh, series we just started a couple weeks ago called Building the People of God. There's an epic building project that God is about to step into, uh, forming, uh, most scholars believe, somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. Uh, into the people of God. And that's going to happen in ways that um, will maybe make a little bit more sense to our memory very soon. But in these early chapters, some of the more unfamiliar parts of the story, uh, they're, they're left for us to remember the beginnings, the foundations. Remember, one of the things we've said over and over again is this story is our story. And if we miss the beginning of the story, we miss the foundations on which God's building. And that's really going to be clear to us today as we step into the second part of Exodus chapter 2. So we've said together, this is our story. We're living this story. And we've said that in the midst of suffering and difficulty and the brokenness of the world around us, we can trust the good character of God. Even when we don't see it all happening the way that we think it should, we can trust the good character of God in the middle of it because he is good and he's writing a good story. And so today I want to ask you a a question that may seem a little counterintuitive at first, but what I want to ask you is what's the limit to human ingenuity? What's like the cap point? What's the point at which human ingenuity has kind of hit its peak? I thought of that this week because um, William Shatner, you maybe saw this, of Star Trek fame, went into space this week. Like he, he boldly went where only a few people who are really rich have gone before. Uh, so um, now we've started this thing where it used to be like you get in a car and you drive across the country or you get in a plane and you fly across the world, but now you get in a rocket and go to space. Like that's what you do for fun. That's, that's crazy. Like that's, that's science fiction stuff, right? And it's not just that. Like literally... Down the street from us, less than a mile from where we're sitting, this week, people's brains were operated on, people's hearts were operated on, people had joints removed from their body and new joints were put into their body. Like, that's like, remember the $6 million man? That's that stuff, right? It's crazy that that's happening. Like, people's skin were removed from one area and put back into another area. I don't even understand what I'm saying right now. Like, that's crazy stuff. And maybe the peak of human ingenuity is this thing that you're probably all carrying around in your pockets or your purses or something. Um, like literally, if I get on this thing right now and I call somebody in Australia, literally on the other side of the world, I can look at them and they can look at me and the video and the audio completely sync up and I can talk to them just like I'm talking to them face to face. Like that's, I'm carrying that in my pocket. Are you kidding me? And when I hang up, I can order toilet paper. Like, <laughs> are you serious? I, I, can, I can listen to every single song ever recorded. I can watch TV on this thing. I can compose a document. I can do my banking. And when I decide that I'm tired of this one, I can order another one, and Jeff Bezos will deliver it to my door tomorrow. Like, I mean, I don't know that it's him exactly, but it's his stuff, whatever. Like, it's crazy. The question is, When human ingenuity starts to run like that, what's the cost? Where's the lid? Is there a cost? What's it create in us? Those are questions we often fail to ask. I I want you to watch a a short clip, a video clip, from uh, the Conan O'Brien show. Uh, It's a comedian named Louis C.K. Some of you know that name. Shame on you for knowing that name. Um, (laughs) If you think this guy's really funny, please do not Google him unless you have a very high tolerance for profanity. 
Um, he, he, is, he is funny. Um, he's, also, uh, he's also quite prophetic in the way that he's, he's speaking, a uh, prophet with a really dirty mouth. Um, really why I'm showing you this video, I showed it to you a couple years ago. Uh, the amount of work it takes to edit profanity out of these clips is really, really intense. So I figured I should use it twice. It's just like good use of time, right? Like I did it once, I might as well show it twice. So uh, I think about the question, what's the cost of all of this as you listen to this? The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they gotta, uh, you gotta check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I. Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes <laughs> that I am alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really sad. It's like jungle. What was the one? Jungle. Jungle Land. I heard it, and it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. So, anyway, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone. And then I said, you know what? Don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness mm -hmm. just stand in the way of it, and let it hit you like a truck. <laughs> and I let it come, and Bruce. And I just started to feel, oh my God. And I pulled over and I just cried. I cried so much. And, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it was just this sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings because because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes rushing in, rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad. And then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip. You never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. That, that clip was like 15 minutes long before I started. It's amazing. I, I showed you that because there is this prophetic word to it, right? Where, where we, you hear all the laughing in the background and like my immediate thought is, why are you laughing? That's not actually funny. But we're, we laugh because we're saying, oh, that, that, that's me. Like, what, what's the cost of human ingenuity? Well, one of those costs, there's lots of them. One of those costs is there's a place inside of ourselves that most of us never get to because we don't have to. Because as soon as I start to get there, I can pull out the phone. I can call somebody. I can serve somebody. I can plug in and connect. See, uh, Christians are notorious 
for not feeling things, and when they start to feel them, they just start to serve somebody, like it's, which is good. Like, don't get me wrong, serve, that's wonderful. Children's ministry right now, like actually. <laughs> but we medicate through serving. We, we medicate our lives through distraction. And we miss what's down there. Exodus 2, the second half of Exodus 2, is a story of a budding social justice activist. Moses has a deep sense of where there's injustice and what he longs to do to fix it. But what he's going to find, like all of us, is there's a limit to what we can do. That our strength doesn't solve the problem. And in order to strip away our strength and get to the place of God, Moses has to journey to the wilderness. And that's the story that we're going to hear. And so Bill's going to come and read for us, starting in uh, Exodus 2, verse 11, and uh, read through the end of the chapter. Would you listen to the story unfold and listen to this journey that Moses takes as he becomes the person that God calls him to be? One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said, to the man who was in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Hmm? Then Moses was afraid and thought, hmm, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Seven daughters. <laughs> well, maybe I should say seven daughters. Woohoo! <laughs> Have to cover both sides these days, you know. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so, so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. <clears throat> During those many days, the king of Egypt died, 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you speak to us, your people, through this story, which is Moses' story, which is our story? Shape us as your people. We would receive from your hand the gifts that you desire to give to us. And so, God, would you guard my words that they would come from you alone? That the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain. They would, they would penetrate our hearts, that we would be changed. Make us new people because of your work in us. And so, Jesus, even as we look into this Old Testament story, may we also behold your glory. And as Paul prayed, may we be increasingly transformed into your likeness. Do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Moses ends up in the wilderness. And so what I want to look at is the path that he took to get to the wilderness, the problem, the, sorry, the purpose of the wilderness itself, and then the problem with the wilderness. So the path that he took to the wilderness, the, the purpose of the wilderness, and what God did in Moses and what God does in the wilderness and the problem that the wilderness has. So um, if you remember last week, we ended with Moses, the baby, being put into a basket, floated down the river. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses out of the river, hires Moses' mom, who is hired as his nurse. And that's kind of where we, we left off with infant baby Moses. Uh, he grows up fast. One day when Moses had grown up, that's it. That's what we get. Uh, so you got n nothing else. Uh, it looks like uh, most uh, Bible scholars would say he's about 40 by this time. So 40 years, just like that. It's amazing. Uh, Moses grows up, and, and the way the narrator describes it is he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So there's uh, this, uh, th this very clear tie that Moses, by age 40, Having been raised in Pharaoh's household, having been educated by Pharaoh's people, having an upper-class Egyptian education, is now choosing to identify with the Israelite people. He's still living in the palace. He's still part of Pharaoh's household. But he's choosing to identify with the people of God, with the, with the Israelite people. Tim Chester, in his commentary, says it this way. When he must choose... Moses identifies with the Hebrews, even though Egyptian princes were taught to despise manual labor. He opts for the oppressed people of promise over the glamour of Egypt. His identity is defined by the promise of God, and so should ours be. So Moses is identified by the people of God. Uh, Chester references this idea that uh, the upper-class Egyptian ed education would have taught that fine, delicate hands are a sign of real humanity. That actually, if you have calluses on your hand, if you work, particularly if you're a slave, it's not just that you're lower class. You're literally subhuman. You're less than human. And so when Moses goes out, it's important for us to get that he sees two people 
one of which is in the, the, the lowest subhuman class, but one of which is just slightly above that class. This Egyptian would also be calloused hands as a slave master seen as subhuman. So Moses goes out to see his people, sees this confrontation happen, and he strikes the Egyptian. Now, the, the word that we have is a single strike. Moses must be a pretty, like, he must be a dude, man. Like, he, he hit him once and buried the guy. Like, wow. Like, that's a, that's a Mike Tyson in the prime of his career kind of shot. Like, that's, that's something going on here. He strikes the Egyptian, buries the Egyptian, and with no commentary on what just happened, the narrator moves on to the next day, and he's walking around again. And now he sees two Hebrews interacting with one another. Same kind of conflict, but now it's a conflict between two Hebrews. Now, the, the narrator is telling us in Hebrew something that we miss in English, which is that there's commonality all along here. So if you look at your text in verse 11, the word for beating, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. In verse 12, the word for struck, he struck down the Egyptian. And in verse 13, strike, why do you strike your companion? That's all the same Hebrew word. So what, what, the, what the narrator is telling us with three, the, the three words in three verses, one after another, is that violence always comes from oppression. A, oppression will always breed violence because of the nature of oppression. So in one instance, that's slave master to slave violence. In the next instance, it's ruling class to slave master violence. And in the final instance, it's oppressed to oppressed violence. But violence always comes out of oppression. The weight of oppression always brings violence. The problem is none of the violence is redemptive violence. So the narrator isn't giving us commentary on the morality of what Moses did. He's simply saying it, it happened this way. Uh, Christopher Wright, in his commentary, talks about that idea of the cycle of violence. He says this, it's clear that human-instigated violence leads to failure. The violence of the Egyptian oppression will not be rightly ended by, two revolution, by revolutionary Hebrew violence, even led by a prince of Egypt. The, the idea of violence coming out, is, it's, it's the natural byproduct but, but the thing that Moses is finding as this uh, budding social justice activist is that he doesn't have what it takes to do what he wants to do, right? He, he literally, he wants to have control and power. He wants to be able to, uh, to, to fix the problem that he sees. And, and this couldn't have, it's 40 years old. This couldn't be the first time that he's seeing this kind of violence. But something in him cracks, snaps. He, he wants to fix it. And he can't because he's not God. And it's frustrating to him. So then he sees these two Hebrews. And when he challenges them, their response is twofold. One, who made you prince and ruler over us? Which is an interesting question because God's going to, just hasn't yet, right? Who made you prince and ruler over us? And are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses immediately has two problems. One of them is an identity problem. He identifies himself with the, the Hebrews. He goes out among his people. But his people just said, who are you? You're not one of us. So he's left Egypt to identify with the Israelites. And the Israelites are saying, you're not one of our people. I don't know what you're doing. So now Moses is having this existential identity crisis, but he's having a very outward crisis because now the murder has been found out. 
People know what's going on, and he knows this is a problem. Somebody's going to tell Pharaoh. And sure enough, as you keep reading, Pharaoh uh, finds out about this, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Now, um, that's not because he killed an Egyptian. Moses, as part of the ruling class, would have been able to kill this Egyptian with no no problem. There's no issue here. Because uh, that that Egyptian, even though he's an Egyptian, he's a slave master, he's seen as subhuman. It's, not, it's no problem for the prince of Egypt to kill an Egyptian. The problem is Moses has tipped his hand. Moses has uh, effectively outed himself to Pharaoh as siding with the Israelites, not siding with Egypt. By killing the Egyptian, Moses has shown where his loyalties lie, and now he's in trouble. Moses, despite the fact that he, in a rash, uh, angry response, kills an Egyptian, is painted for us as one who is, um, although enacting it in wrong ways, having right motivations. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews describes Moses and even this act as as faithful. Listen to the way it's uh, written in Hebrews 11. I'll just put it on the screen for you. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the, called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This commentary back on Egypt and back on Moses is saying to us, Moses had good motivations. The problem was he he wanted to do the work of God. He just didn't want to do it in the way of God. He didn't want to do it in the strength of God. As uh, this, th- this guy full of, full of passion and full of, uh, f- full of this, this kind of youthful enthusiasm, he's saying, I see the problem, I want to fix the problem. But the problem is, for all of us, when we act like God, we will at some point hit a wall and recognize we're not God. That's what happened to Moses. He, he, he wants to be able to control the situation, but only God's in control, he's not. He wants to have the power to free the people, but all he has the power to do is kill this lowly Egyptian slave master. Doesn't solve anything. And what ends up happening is he's now on the run. Pharaoh's after him, and so he takes off. Um, And it's great, the the way it reads, it reads really quickly. Pharaoh heard of it, this is verse 15, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So he has arrived at Midian. Now, if you don't know uh, what Midian is, um, what's really important is that it's not Egypt. It's it's nowhere. Um, It's like saying, um, he he left and he arrived in Airville. Like, Woohoo! Yeah, right. It's like he made it to Brogue. All right. Yeah. Everybody's. It, it's nowhere. Like that's the, that's the point. Like he he's the prince of Egypt, and he's arrived in the middle of nowhere, into obscurity. To be not sorry if you're from Airville. It's okay. It's, it's fine. It's beautiful down there. Um. It, so like it, he arrived in the middle of nowhere. Like it's it's nothing. But look at the very last part of verse fifteen. And he sat down by a well. 
Now remember, I said to you the last couple weeks, you need to read Exodus in the light of Genesis. If you understand what's happening in Genesis, you'll read it into the book of Exodus. And if you're reading Exodus in light of Genesis and you read Moses sat down by a well, you just said, ooh, huh. Because good things happen by wells. Um, Usually, um, what always seems to happen is when a guy, particularly the main character in God's story, comes to a well, a woman always shows up at the well. That's the way it works. Like, you, you just look, like, look at it. Like, like it's just constantly, these women are showing up at the well. Uh, even, it even happened to Jesus. Jesus showed up at the well. Woman was at the well, right? Uh, one commentator I was reading this week said, uh, but she didn't marry Jesus because she had already married enough people. And I thought, <laughs> I don't really think that's the reason she didn't marry Jesus. But anyway, that's a, anyway, that's a different, different thing. So Moses comes to the well, and an adept reader of the Hebrew narrative is saying, ooh, something's about to happen. And sure enough, seven women show up. Like Moses is big time, right? Like all, seven women show up, and Moses is like, hey, because Moses knows the stories, right? He knows what happens at the well. That's probably why he went to the well. Like he, he knows. And so he's like, ooh, this is, this, this is good. But then the shepherds show up. So here comes social justice activist Moses. The women are coming to do what is culturally— women's work. I'm not saying that as a social commentary. I'm telling you what's going on historically. This is, this is women's work to water the sheep. So they're coming to water the sheep, but these shepherds show up. So they are lower class, but they're a higher class than the women who are watering the sheep. They're watering their own sheep, but they're men, so they have priority. They're running the women away so they can water their sheep. Moses says, this is unjust. And now he kind of rises up again. And now he's finally one for three. It actually works this time. So the the first two, he totally like flops. Well, I mean, he did kill the Egyptian, but it didn't go well for him after that. The Hebrew thing didn't work out. Now he he rises up again and he runs the shepherds off. I don't know how many there were, and I don't know if he went like all Chuck Norris on him or what. I'm not sure exactly how he did that, but he just must have like just, I don't know, whatever. They ran away. And then it says, he then watered the sheep. So it's women's work, but Moses did it. He goes and waters the sheep. And the daughters go back to their house, and they're like, Dad. And he's like, what are you doing back here? Because the shepherds, they always do that thing, right? And he's, she's like, yeah, but there was this Egyptian that showed up, and he watered the sheep. He ran the shepherds off, and he watered the sheep for us. And the dad was like, ladies, that guy's a keeper. Like, why, why did you not bring him back here? Like, you should have. So they're like, oh, yeah, we'll bring him, we'll bring him back. So he comes in. Now, if you thought he grew up fast, look at, look at this. Um, Moses is verse 21. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and she called his name Gershom. Whoa. <laughs> like, um, Moses is moving here, right? Like, he just showed up, then he's married, then he has a kid. Like, things are, things are flying, because the narrator wants us to see something really important. Not so much that he met Zipporah and got married. Not so much that he had a son, although that's going to become important in a minute. He wants us to see that he's dwelling in Midian. The prince of Egypt is dwelling in Midian. And what we'll find out real soon is that he's a shepherd in Midian. Now, if you remember in the end of Genesis, when Joseph's family came to Egypt, they were sent out to the area called Goshen because the Egyptians despised shepherds. And so they were sent out there. That's where the shepherds go, out there. Now here's the prince of Egypt becoming a shepherd in Brogue, whatever, Binion. Like he's out in the middle of nowhere, in obscurity, being a shepherd. God is stripping away 
And this is the entry into the wilderness. And what's going to happen into the wilderness for Moses are two key issues that have to be addressed. Moses has an identity issue, and Moses has an anger issue. So let's start with identity. Moses shows up in Midian after he's identified with the Hebrew people, after he has uh, been identified by the Hebrew people as an Egyptian, goes to Midian. The, the daughters say, an Egyptian rescued us from, their hand, from the hands of the shepherds, and he doesn't even fight it. It's just like, what? I, don't, I don't even know who I am. Like, I don't know. And now he's dwelling in Midian. He doesn't fit there either. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, uh, uses Moses as a case study. I love the way she talks about this. Moses' early childhood experiences were quite traumatic by any standard. He was born into an environment that was highly unsafe and volatile for children. He was abandoned by his mother, even though it was for the best of reasons. He was then reunited with his birth family, only to be returned to his adoptive family later on. He was raised in a pagan environment that was fundamentally different from the environment in which he had spent his early years, an environment that prohibited him from living and worshiping with his family and his fellow Hebrews according to the traditions of his own heritage. He lived between two worlds, yet was not fully at home in either place. As an outsider, both among his people and among the Egyptians who had raised him, he probably wrestled every day with issues related to his identity. Like, I, I know when the, the cutouts went onto the felt board, it looked really nice. But we miss some of the layers of this story. Like, here's a guy who at 40 has no idea who he is. Like, no idea. He, he thought he was an Egyptian, but then he decided he was a Hebrew. He's not accepted by the Hebrews, but he's being run out by the Egyptians. He shows up in Midian. He doesn't fit in Midian. Now he's just a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, but he was a prince last week. Like, what's going on? And it's in the midst of the wilderness where Moses starts to wrestle with his identity. And we see it because when he has a son, he names his son Gershom. I know a lot of you were going to use that name. Moses already took it. Sorry. I know that's a great, great name for your firstborn. Gershom, literally meaning I, I'm from nowhere. Uh, the, the root word uh, is actually the, the word sojourner in your translation is literally the word ger. Moses is a ger, an outsider, a foreigner. He doesn't fit. And what I love about this story is that God doesn't fix his circumstance. That's not the point. He doesn't say, here, Moses, here's, here's how you fit. Here's who you are. You fit among these people in this way. I have you in this position. He doesn't change his circumstance. He's a shepherd in Midian. But when he finally recognizes what his circumstances are, he admits it. I'm going to name my son Gershom because that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a Ger. I'm an outsider. I'm a nothing. That's when God starts to work. God is stripping away all of the extras. Let me ask you a question. If all of the identity stuff, all the stuff that identifies you is stripped away, so all your education is stripped away, your vocation is stripped away, your family identity is stripped away, your spouse is stripped away, your, your children are stripped away, all the things that would identify you, the community that you're in, the accomplishments that you've made, when, when all of it's gone, who are you? Who are you when it's just you? And most of us, if we're totally honest and we allow ourselves a little bit of time to go there as a thought experiment, we, we would say, I, I don't, not only don't I know, I don't want to know. Like, I'm terrified by that idea. 
Like, what do, you, what do you mean, like, if everything's stripped away? That's what happened to Moses. The prince of Egypt becomes the shepherd in Midian who doesn't fit anywhere. And that's where God starts to work. Right in the middle of his nothing, God starts to show him who he truly is. But it's not just identity that he's working on. He's also working on um, this, this little bit of anger that Moses has. You know, like when you see a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of a conflict and you decide to murder a guy and bury him in the sand, that little bit of anger. You know, because God's looking at him and saying, like, I want you to lead a, a nation of two to three million people. And if you're going to like flip out and kill people over little conflicts, this is not going to go well. Like it's going to get really ugly. Like if you've read ahead in the book of Exodus, you know, the Israelites aren't always lovable. Like just imagine if Moses has not been shaped through this, right? There'd just be like dead Israelite bodies just strewing the, the desert, right? It's like God needs to work on this. And so God meets him in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness. And um, we're, we're going to get there next week. You're going to see a different Moses in Exodus 3. It's really amazing. Like the wilderness chills out Moses. Moses comes into Midian and his mindset is, I'm somebody who can do something and I'm going to do it. I, I'm important. I have control. I have power. I just came from Pharaoh's palace, but I have insight. I have special knowledge. I know what it's like to be among the oppressed people because I identify with the oppressed people. I, I'm, I, if, if I can use the term, Moses is powerful and woke at the same time, right? Like he's, he's both. And he's saying, like, I can do this. And God's saying, no, you can't. What, what you're bringing to the table is a lot of you and not much of me. And so over a period of time, God has to strip all that away from Moses. Again, uh, Ruth Haley Barton's commentary, look at the way she says it. In solitude, we stop believing our own press. It's a great word. We discover that we're not as good as we thought, but we are also more than we thought. And as we slowly come in contact with our own dysfunctions, we unveil our need for security and all the ways we try to use God and others to get it. It's in the wilderness where we recognize God's not mine to use, I'm his to use. It's in the wilderness that we recognize all of the power I thought I had is really nothing compared to the creator of the universe. And whatever I thought I was, that's not really important because I'm really not much. And yet I'm loved by the God of the universe who created me. And all of a sudden that whole process begins to invert in us. It's in the wilderness that Moses is shaped. And it's over the course of this journey that God uses the wilderness to do this work in Moses. And and that's the way God works throughout the scriptures. Like if you start to flip through the Bible, you're going to see wilderness throughout. You're going to see it over and over and over again. Like I'll just give you a few examples. Paul, when uh, he comes to faith in Jesus, this miraculous uh, uh, conversion, uh, it, he's going to tell us that he spent weeks in the wilderness, months in the wilderness being shaped, being formed by Jesus himself. He's actually like being, uh, being shaped by God. 
Jesus himself went to the wilderness, led by the Spirit is the way the Scriptures tell us. And in that process, he, uh, he shored the identity that God had named him. You are my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. He shored that identity, and he did that small work of reliving Genesis 3 and conquering Satan instead of falling to him. All of that was in the wilderness. Elijah went to the wilderness full of fear, full of anger, uh, just desperate. And he emerges from the wilderness with the surety of the call of God on his life, and he begins to do the work of a prophet. My favorite one is God speaking through the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 2. And he says to his people, I'm going I'm to lure you out to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, I am going to convert you. You're no longer going to call me my Lord, but instead you're going to call me my husband. You're going to stop seeing this relationship as one where you have to come and serve me through certain ordinances and practices, but instead of religion, you're going to come into a loving relationship with me. You're going to remember how much I love you and how much you love me. The wilderness is powerful. The wilderness is important. It needs to happen. Moses had to go through the wilderness to be used by God in the rest of the book of Exodus. So what's the problem with the wilderness? Like, it sounds pretty good, right? Like, there's good stuff happening there. Here's the problem with the wilderness. You and I will do anything we can do to avoid it. Anything. Because we're terrified of what we'll find there. We will cultivate a life that stays as far away from the silence of the wilderness, from the stripping away of identity, we'll stay as far away from it as we can. We're going to build up an identity around us so we don't have to feel that of all things. Andrew Sullivan very provocatively says, says this, if there is no dark night of the soul anymore that isn't lit with the flicker of a screen, then there is no morning of hopefulness either. Over the last many centuries, the church has used that language, the dark night of the soul, as part of the spiritual progression in formation. As we become closer and closer to Jesus and, be, and approach unity with Christ, there's this thing called the dark night of the soul that the saints have experienced where they, there, there's this sense of, of desperation of, of everything being stripped away, even the, the sense of the presence of God being stripped away. And it's in that dark night of the soul that we become the people that God calls us to be. And what Sullivan's saying is, uh, you can't have darkness if all you're doing is staring at a screen all the time. Like, there's always light in the darkness. The darkness is the point of the work. Like, that has to happen. And so if you don't have a dark night of the soul, you don't have a morning of hopefulness. You, formation doesn't happen. We do everything that we can do to avoid the wilderness but God shapes us in the wilderness. John Calvin uh, used the term an idol factory to describe human hearts. He says human hearts are like an idol factory. Like, like just picture a, a big conveyor belt and we're just like chugging out idols. Like new things to worship all the time. Something exciting, something to, to distract us, something to get in front of us, something that we can give our attention to, something that we can give our, our worship to in a literal way. And, and there are hundreds of thousands of kinds of idols that you, could, you can come up with, all kinds of ways that we give our affections. But theologians narrow that down to what they call source idols. And most theologians would say there's a, just a handful of them. Uh, four is the most, uh, most primary that I've seen. And those four source idols, listen to these, are comfort, control, power, and approval. 
So all of the idols, all the thousands of idols, come down to these four things. Comfort, that I would seek after feeling good, having pleasure, doing what I want, when I want, in a way that's comfortable for me, that gives me pleasure. Comfort idol. Control idol, that I stay in control and everybody else can do whatever they do, but I'm going to be in control of me. I'm going to be in control of my world. So that means if I have to shrink my world down, I'll shrink my world down, but I'm going to be in control of my thing. Power. And uh, the flip side of it, the fear that comes from being out of power. If somebody has power, I don't want to have power. If I don't have any power, there's an idol there. And approval. That I'm hearing from some other source how good I am so I can feel good about me. What happens when we go into the wilderness? No longer any comfort. Comfort's gone. We feel completely out of control. We recognize that we're powerless and all the voices of approval are silenced. The wilderness is tailor-made to destroy all of our idols, which is why we run the other way. Like the last thing that we want is to take all of those things that we lean on for comfort and stability that give us identity and remove them all at once. What will we find then? And yet, the Bible is going to show us over and over and over again that the pathway to Christ in me, to seeing Christ formed in me, has to go through the wilderness. Dan Allender, in his book, The Healing Path, uses the term desert for wilderness. I'm going to leave desert in the first uh, sentence, but then replace it with wilderness. He says, our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. Think of that in light of Moses, right? Our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It's in the silence of the wilderness that we hear our dependence on noise. It's in the poverty of the wilderness that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The wilderness shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves the body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the wilderness, we trust God or we die. Who wants to choose that? And see, that's the challenge. Like, uh, there are times where God brings wilderness to us, and we do everything we can do to avoid it. I I think the language of the gospel writers is so provocative when it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Like, the, the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism, and the first thing that Spirit dwelling upon him, anointing him, tells him to do is go to the wilderness. How often are we being told that and we say, yeah, 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 but I got stuff. I I have an appointment tomorrow. I got an Instagram message I need to respond to. I have likes coming in. Come on. I, I have emails. I have somebody to serve. I have something to do. Jesus listening to the Spirit was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I believe God beckons us as his people into the wilderness. But he also gives us the right to shut down that voice. That's the challenge we have. Like God wants to, longs to form us through the wilderness. He will faithfully do his work. If you, I don't think I'm spoiling the story. If you read ahead, you're going to see that Moses, after spending 40 years in the wilderness, has an incredible encounter with God right in front of him. We'll get there next week. God shows up in the wilderness. 
in powerful ways. But it took 40 years. Most of us don't have the patience for that. Jesus leads us into the wilderness if we will listen to his spirit, but it requires us being willing to listen and then put our phone away and say, I will not distract myself. I will not just watch the game. I will not just connect with that person. I will listen to the spirit. We're going to dig into these, next, these last two verses next week, but I just, I just want you to hear what's happening while this is happening to Moses. Moses now is exiled. He's a shepherd in Midian. He's a Gur, dealing with his identity, dealing with his anger, God stripping all of it away. Now listen to this, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now listen to this verse. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That word knew is the Hebrew word yada. It's the most intimate form of knowing. God knows them. All the while, here's Moses being stripped away, being um, subjected to the wilderness. God is forming his deliverer while he knows his people as he prepares his deliverer to rescue his people in his way with his power. God's doing this in the middle of the wilderness. And so what do we do with this? Well, I, I think the invitation is simple and difficult. And the invitation is to, when offered, choose the wilderness. Be willing to allow the God of the universe to lead you into the wilderness. If you were with us back in 2019 when we kind of shifted the way we do spiritual formation, we did our very first practice series in May of 2019, and it was on the discipline of silence and solitude, the practice of silence and solitude. We started there because throughout the centuries, silence and solitude is seen as the, the, the foundational discipline, the practice of Jesus on which everything else is built. And so um, the, the invitation is into the silence and solitude of the wilderness. And so if, you don't, if you're saying, okay, I hear all of that, but I'm just not sure what to do with that. I don't, I don't know where to go with it. The first thing I would tell you is if you hop on our website and go under resources and study guides, you'll find a, the practice guide from Solitude and Silence. And it's going to give you, I don't remember, five or six weeks of very practical, this is how you engage this. But, but it's going to look a little bit different for all of us. I think that's the beauty of the Spirit of God leading Jesus into the wilderness. It's going to look a little different for everybody. And so it, it may be as simple for you as you, you set your alarm a little bit earlier, and you get up before everybody else, and you, you stop approaching your devotional time like a North American Christian. I don't know if you know what I mean. Like, like It's like when we get to the quiet, quiet time, we get to our quiet time, our quiet time is filled with um, all the reading we have to do and all the devotional reading we have to do and the long list that we have to pray and the journaling that we need to do and the coffee we need to drink and the quick Instagram photo and then we're done, right? Like everything's, like it's filled up. Like what happens if you get up and it's quiet and you push even the Bible to the side for a minute and even the journal and the prayer list to the side for a minute? Maybe even the coffee to the side. That's maybe heresy. I'm not, I'm not sure. Whatever. And, you, and in the silence, you just say, Jesus, who am I? How do you want to speak to me today? What is it that I need to hear from you? 
and you take three or four or five minutes, which doesn't sound very long until you try to do it, three or four or five minutes in complete silence and just listen to him. You've never tried that. Try it tomorrow morning. That's a wilderness experience. It's, it, in, a, in a world that is so full of messages and noise, it's hard to be quiet for five minutes. Listen. It may be that for you, you have a regular trip in a car that has to go from point A to point B, and there's a, a series of podcasts and audiobooks and songs and phone calls and all kinds of stuff that is normally a part of that drive, and it may be that you just need to turn off everything and drive and listen. Just be quiet. It may be for some of you that you need uh, some time away. Probably not the 40 years of Moses or even the 40 days of Jesus. Some of you are like 40 days of silence. I'm so ready. And your, your spouse just elbowed you and said, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> not that easy. Um, but, but maybe sometime, a couple hours in the afternoon, maybe an overnight retreat, maybe a time of silence. There are wilderness experiences that God forces upon us. Some of you maybe feel like you're in a wilderness right now. And sometimes that happens. Yeah. But there are, there are other times where he allows us to choose the wilderness. And there are times where God has led us into the wilderness. And when we get there, we pull out our phones and distract ourselves anyways. I had a conversation with somebody after the first service who was saying, I, I, I just got this image of me as an older man wasting away staring at my phone. Like, that's it. That's life. Like, sometimes God leads us to the wilderness and says, I want to form you here. And we say, no, 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 I don't want to listen. I need to fill up that noise, that, that quiet. It's too quiet. And so the invitation is into the wilderness, but it's not just to go and to have everything stripped away. It's to be stripped away so that we can encounter him, so that Christ can be formed in us. And so I don't know what your story is, and I don't know what the barrier is for you. And for some of us, there are real, very real practical barriers. Um, I remember when our, we had a lot of young kids in our house, the idea of quiet was laughable. Right? It's like, yeah, right, yeah, there's quiet sometimes. <laughs> it may be for you, it's just, it's just a chock-full schedule. It's just like there's so much. But if we're really honest, for a lot of us, it's just that down, deep down inside, there's that thing that he talked about, that, that empty nothingness. We just don't want to go there. And it's, a, it's when God speaks into that that he begins to redeem it. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and they're going to lead us in response. And I'm going to invite you to just take a moment to listen to the Spirit. This is um, not going to be a substitute for silence and solitude. It's going to be like 10 seconds, which is not the same thing. But in the quiet, I want you to just ask God, how do I respond to this? What's it look like for me to step into this? And so Jesus, meet us in the quiet by your spirit and speak to us. We long to be formed into the image of Christ. And so show us what that looks like.